Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut. I am really excited about the guest today. It is Dr. Brian Hopkins from the Brigham Young University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hopkins. Thank you. Glad to be here. I I think this is the first time we've met. Uh, this is a virtual meeting, but I don't know. I don't know that we've ever met at any conferences uh, or met in person, have we? Uh, not that I can think of, but I'm, I have a horrible memory. So, so maybe. <laughs> well, I I don't often uh, go to the United States. I'm I'm from the United States, but I don't spend so much time there. I'm in Southern Thailand right now. So I, I do a lot of reading and, and listening and watching and, and observing and studying from afar, which with modern technology that makes it, uh, so possible to do. So I follow some of the work that you do. And in 2018, I, was so impressed with an article that you wrote with Tyler Hopkins. And I, I'm going to ask you, is, is, are you related to Tyler Hopkins? Yeah, Tyler um, is my son. And uh, we, in addition to being a professor, I also am part of a family company. And Tyler works full time for the company. And he helps me with all aspects of our research and writing. So yeah, that's oh, Tyler. Okay, that, well, that is... That is good to know. I've, I've been curious about that ever since I read the, the, uh, the, is it the byline in the article? The, the article, um, is, let's see, are we, all right, here we go. Yeah. The, the article is, is called, uh, it has a title carbon, the next frontier in fertilization question mark. And, uh, it's by, Brian Hopkins and Tyler Hopkins. So uh, I was always wondering who who is Tyler Hopkins? Is it your brother? Is it your son? Is it somebody who just has a similar name? So that's cool. Um, so I read that in 2018. It's in the uh, Crop and Soils my Crop and Soils magazine that's published by the American Society of Agronomy, and as I was mentioning to you, I put a blog post up about that, and I gave the blog post the title, Is Carbon the Next Frontier in Fertilization? And I took all that this article, or sorry, all that my blog post is, is quotes from your article. Uh, I didn't really add anything to it. Well, ever since 2018, this has been one of the top posts on the website. And I have been so surprised that over the past six years, that this is a topic that so many people are, are reading about. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if I could talk with you <laughs> a little bit about this and, and, and just kind of figure out what's going on with this. Because to me, uh, I thought you stated it so well in the article, you said uh, that the, well, I'll, I'll, read, the, I'll read the quote. Uh, you said, should we be applying carbon fertilizer? The answer is no. 
although the carbon content of the atmosphere is far less than 1%, plants capture it efficiently. It is their mission in life. As a rule, plants are not carbon deficient. So I thought that like stated it so clearly. And, you know, for my education at Oregon State and then uh, graduate school at Cornell University, uh, we kind of learned that plants uh, take carbon from the atmosphere and they make carbohydrates and, and they grow. So I, I never really thought about adding carbon fertilizer. So this article uh, I thought was uh, really well written to explain that. So I'm kind of curious, uh, what prompted you to write the article on that particular topic? I just began to notice over the years just an increasing number of advertisements and sessions at, at meetings that I was at talking about carbon fertilization. And I just would recoil a little bit because of the, the misunderstandings that are part of that. And you know, some people were literally thinking, yeah, we need to, you know, fertilize with carbon. It's almost 50% of the plant uh, dry matter and so sure we should be adding it but uh, it's just not true and, and now there are some carbon based compounds that some of these folks that's what they really meant they would so to me it was at, at, at worst um, a falsehood and at best uh, a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation of saying that yeah I'm going to be fertilizing with with carbon like for example if I'm adding a humic acid, there might be a legitimate reason to do that. There's a, quite a few folks, though, that would call that carbon fertilization. I would not. I, I think that we need to be more precise in our language. And so this was my effort to try to kind of combat both of those uh, issues. Well, good job. I found it to be a powerful uh, article, and you use such good examples because you – uh, you mentioned uh, humic acid as a type of, uh, you know, you could call that a carbon fertilizer, but that would really wouldn't be accurate. But you could also call uh, urea a carbon fertilizer, and then you you brought up glyphosate, which is not a fertilizer, but you could call that a carbon fertilizer too, I guess, um, because all of those compounds, glyphosate, urea, humic acid, they all have carbon in them. And you suggested in the article that we should be a little bit uh, more careful with our terminology. Yeah, precisely. So um, for anybody who hasn't uh, read this yet, um, if you want a link, if you want the full article and you can't access it, um, I can... I can get you a copy of that, um, or you can read some of the key quotes uh, on my website. I think I, I want to read a couple more of the quotes from here that I thought were really good and, and talk about some of the research that you summarized uh, in this article also. Um, you said that plants are a factory of sorts whose byproduct is a carbon-containing sugar with oxygen gas as a byproduct. And... You also, you also wrote, what about applying solid forms of carbon to the soil? 
This is doable and promoted at an alarming rate. There are a wide variety of compounds on the earth that contain carbon, but is it wise to add them as fertilizer? It is true that many compounds containing carbon have been documented to positively impact plants. A notable example is urea fertilizer, which contains one atom of carbon for every two atoms of nitrogen. And then then you talked about some of the research that you've done. You said that you've conducted more than two dozen trials over two decades on a variety of species from turf grass to row crops, comparing nothing added or a negative control versus various carbon fertilizers. And because the carbon fertilizers, which you put in quotes, also contained other nutrients, you did another trial, uh, you did a, a nutrient concentration that matched uh, what was in the carbon-containing product, and you compared that as a positive control. And so what was the results of that? Can you, can you describe like what, what those experiments are uh, and uh, kind of what the, the general result was? Yeah, and, and we've done more since, and we've learned more um, since I wrote this article. Um, but yeah, the, you know, so one of the problems out there is people not doing good science. And so they, they go out there and they apply, you know, a, a, a compost material that's got, you know, carbon in it. And, you know, and they're calling it carbon fertilization. Well, it, you know, it, what, what's giving the plant response? Is it, is it the nitrogen? Probably the nitrogen and some of the other nutrients. And so in order to truly do at work and say, did carbon benefit or was it something else? You have to have true controls. So, so we have negative control with nothing, but then the positive control is that it's basically a, a replica of that carbon fertilizer. It's got all of the other nutrients except carbon. And that way it's a, it's a legitimate way of evaluating that. Now, sometimes, you know, we do, we have got some responses sometimes, um, like with humic acid, for example, that that's one that I've actually had the most luck with um, in that. So, and what we've done, like, for example, I did some potato research uh, where I found that adding humic acid with phosphorus fertilizer actually increased the amount of phosphorus in the plant. And so I would argue that it, you know, it wasn't carbon that gave the benefit that the, the humic acid has a carbon backbone and that was the vehicle for delivering the phosphorus, but it was truly a phosphorus response. Now, there's other studies that have been done uh, mostly by other people. Uh, I've done a couple, but showing like a biostimulant response at times with uh, with a humic acid. Um, so there's certainly those kinds of things out there, but, but is it a carbon response? No, it's not. Our, our data clearly showed that, that when we separated out those things, it was something else besides carbon that was giving us a, a plant response. Thank, thank you for that uh, explanation. And I think, uh, d didn't you suggest that uh, when you, like not talking about carbon, but talking about humic acid and phosphorus availability, uh, wouldn't that tend to be uh, more likely to see an effect at some extreme pH values where the phosphorus solubility in the soil may not be so high. Yeah. And we should do a podcast on that someday. <laughs> because, 
I've just been abused with that. I, I did I did a bunch of phosphorus uh, humic acid research. Now, I'm in the West, and our soils are calcareous, low organic matter soils, and phosphorus availability and solubility in those soils is pretty low. And we tend to see a response to phosphorus when you wouldn't in, in a like a neutral pH or even in slightly acidic soil. Um, so, so yeah, that extreme pH can, can really make a difference. But what happens is, is people take my research in these, these type of soils and they just try to extrapolate it to everything else, including, you know, trying to say, oh, this works in turf grass and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, uh, or it works in other crops. I don't, I, about 50% of my research is turf grass and the other 50% is crops. And so, so I work with a lot of different species, but but yeah, you really need to understand the conditions in which the research was done and not just wildly extrapolate. Uh, and humic acid just really gets a lot of uh, sales and I, my responses to it are limited. Um, I think it's a good product when used right in the right conditions, but it's not just something that should be applied to every acre out there. Do you know um like there's so many humic acid products on the market um is it a, a byproduct of some industrial process uh, that just makes so much of it available do you know where does humic acid generally come from the stuff that's in the jugs yeah the vast majority of it is mined um it's uh, you know leonardite is is a mineral that's that's in soil it you know comes from ancient deposits of of uh organic material plants and and possibly other things too but mostly plants and anyway you, you can form that leonardite and then uh companies will go in and extract it and you know it's it's hard to get a, a specific chemical uh, uh characterization of it because it's you know it changes from one you know, batch to another, or even, you know, one molecule to another, there's different uh, functional groups. And so humic acid is kind of this big nebulous thing. It's not like urea, that's a very precise molecule. And I know exactly what the percentages of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen are in it. Um, and, uh, but humic acid is, is, you know, a lot of different things. So that's, that's one thing too, is when I buy humic acid, it can be a, fairly wide range of, uh, of functionality and effectiveness. And so working with a reputable company that's got a product that's consistent, I think is one of the important things that when using a humic acid. I, I've had some really good luck with it. I really have had works with some companies that have some good products, um, but I've also worked with uh, some products that were, you know, kind of hit and miss. Um, they weren't consistent from one batch to the next. And, and are you talking now, are you more likely to see a response on agricultural crops or more likely to see a response on turf grass? I'll be honest with you. I haven't seen a lot of response to humic acid with turf grass. Um, I have seen some. I've, I've had a few instances where, you know, I have, you know, really like typically a new planting, um, you know, recently seeded or sodded uh, grass and low organic again low organic matter more likely to get a response uh, alkaline conditions or calcareous soils more likely to get a response and of course most of my work is in that world um, so i'm not as informed you know, on acid soils but 
but yeah, I haven't had, I haven't had tons of uh, response. In fact, I'd say most of the time in turf grass, I have not seen a response. Um, more likely like potato would be one that was just, potatoes just really has a hard time taking up phosphorus. It's shallow rooted. It's got inefficient root system. It needs a lot of phosphorus. And so the odds of getting a response on that species is pretty high. In contrast, uh, turf grass has a very fibrous root system. It tends to explore the topsoil where most of my phosphorus is resonant. And it, it's pretty good. I have a really hard time showing responses to phosphorus fertilizer in turf grass because of that. Uh, I know we do get them. I mean, I, you know, we, we can get conditions where we definitely need to add phosphorus. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, especially again, new, new, new seedlings, um, new sod, you know, when I don't have that established root system, I got a pretty high, you know, high probability of response to phosphorus, but on an established grass, um, it's got that, you know, good root system. I just really have a hard time seeing a response to phosphorus and, and that would, I would add humic acid to that. So I can just add straight phosphorus, adding the humic acid with the phosphorus is what I would call an enhanced efficiency product. And I can use less of it for one thing. Um, and I'm more likely to get a response because it improves the, the solubility. One of the nice things about humic acid and phosphorus is that um, it makes the phosphorus mo more mobile. So we've got data that shows that phosphorus normally is not mobile in the soil, just kind of sits wherever you apply it in most situations, not all situations, but most. But, but when I couple that with a humic acid molecule, it'll, it'll, allow that phosphorus to move. So, so in a permanent sod situation or an orchard, you know, where we're not using tillage to get the phosphorus moved into the soil, uh, the humic acid can be a benefit. It can get it down to that lower part of the, the soil with that the plants can benefit. And that's true for, you know, permanent sod that's a turf grass. That leads to, uh, something I hadn't ever thought of before. Um, you may be aware that creeping bank grass has uh, tends to have a, a more extensive root system than poa annua. And there's some research that shows that poa annua will suffer more from low... F Basically, you could favor creeping bank grass over poa annua in a mixed stand if the soil phosphorus gets low enough. But you also mentioned that phosphorus tends to stay near the surface, which is also where the poa annua roots are. And I just wonder if you do inherit, let, let's say you've got a golf course putting green, it's got poa annua and creeping bent grass on it. You inherit that and also in, you inherit uh, a relatively high phosphorus content at the top of the root zone. Could simply applying uh, humic acid and water assist could that more rapidly decrease the phosphorus at the top of the root zone by causing that phosphorus to move down a bit do you, do you think there's some potential for that i think there's a potential for that that's really interesting thinking um uh yeah yeah that's a i have never put those two things together so that's an interesting hypothesis and it very well could i i i haven't had much luck with adding humic acid without the phosphorus, like 
um, I just, I suspect, I don't know. I just suspect that it doesn't really grab the phosphorus and bond with it, form a chemical bond with it as, as effectively. Like if I mix that or even better, if, if it's manufactured and we're forcing a bond to, to uh, be created, um, it, it, that, that is more likely. Whereas if I, and again, I don't know this for sure, but I, if I add phosphorus, or excuse me, if I add humic acid to the soil, is it going to go in there and bond with phosphorus and then move it down? I, yeah, I don't know, but it's possible, you know, and it, that, that's something that I'd be, you know, poannas are bane of our existence, what I always say. And if we, that sounds like a great research project that we should be doing. Some, somebody needs to do that. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting one. <clears throat> I, I think there's, there's a lot of potential. Uh, you see in Europe with a lot of the chemical restrictions, they start trying all kinds of innovative things to try to manage with uh, less, uh, less pesticides or with no pesticides. And I, I've been surprised sometimes uh, at how good the surfaces can be with some interesting management. So, yeah, we have to think outside the box a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I would just want to reiterate what you said, though. You're absolutely right about the phosphorus and the annual bluegrass. I mean, it's, it, you know, that's a reason not to build your phosphorus levels up to, to be, you know. And what I find, in fact, I just am getting ready to publish a study um, of a survey. Of, it's not golf, it's sports fields. Um, but, uh, you know, on average, we're just far, far too high. And we just go out and apply it, whether we need it or not. And, and that favors annual bluegrass. And we, we, it's a lesson that seems like all of us should pay attention to. I mean, it's, it's well-known fact that uh, of what you said is that it, it, we shouldn't be driving those phosphorus levels up because if we do, it favors the poana. Yeah, and, and it's persistent because once you drive it up and once <clears throat> excuse me, once Poa annua gets a foothold, once, once Poa annua is, is present and producing seed in your stand, you've kind of lost the battle. Um, yeah. and, and yet if you can keep it out and you can keep the phosphorus low enough so that your desired species has enough and it doesn't favor Poa annua, you can certainly prolong the time at which you have the desired species, uh, dominating so yeah well that's that's interesting that it gets a little bit away from uh our carbon uh <laughs> carbon fertilizer topic Let, let's get back to that i have a couple more uh things i wanted to to highlight in this um i just i encourage everyone if if you're not familiar with this there's a reason why it's one of the top posts on the atc website um it, this is just such a powerful article, and I didn't write any words of it. It's just quotes from your article. Um, but you said, uh, yeah, the, the so-called, so summarizing those uh, research projects, you said, the so-called carbon fertilizer did not impact carbon status in the plant in any case. And then, then the, the kind of the joke about glyphosate, uh, you wrote, to further illustrate this point, many compounds containing carbon have been documented to negatively impact plants. A notable example is glyphosate herbicide. It is erroneous to conclude that the carbon is what kills plants. And, and you're referring to the carbon in the glyphosate molecule. 
Yes, carbon is part of the molecule, but it is the entire sum of the parts that makes this molecule effective and not any individual atom. And the final paragraph was summed up. It says, uh, forget about fertilizing with carbon. Use products proven scientifically in replicated research via unbiased third-party sources. Some of these will be carbon-based and others will not. In general, whether it's urea or glyphosate, the presence of carbon is an important part of the sum of the molecule's effectiveness, but carbon nutrition is not the reason for the response. And I just thought that was such a powerful article. I wonder, have you received any feedback or much feedback over the past six years since since publishing that um, positive or negative about the content of that article? Yeah, a lot, a lot of feedback and, um, you know, people reaching out and asking questions, you know, like, like I didn't realize this and, and just trying to get some clarification on, you know, what about this and what about that? So I get, I get a lot of those kinds of phone calls, people asking me about products and, and, you know, if I've got research, I, I do a lot of research. I look at a lot of products. I don't look at all of them. And so sometimes I'm talking about, yes, I, you know, I've worked with that one and here's what I think. And in other cases, I'm just speculating because, you know, I'm just looking at the label and trying to say, well, you know, and, and trying to see, you know, do, does this company have any research? But, but again, sometimes they're showing a response and I'm just trying to decide it's like, well, why did you get a response? Because most of the research that's done on these products isn't done correctly uh, with a positive and negative control. Um, and, and then, you know, so, the, so like I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, you know, it's possible that it was some of the other nutrients that were in that material, or it was a biostimulant response. I mean, but the whole biostimulant world is, man, that's a tough one because sometimes in my experience and others, some other respected folks that I, I have a lot of, uh, I think they know what they're talking about. Um, you know, if I have a well-managed system that I don't have a lot of stress, I don't really see a lot of response to these biostimulants, but I get, I get some stress, heat stress, salt stress, you know, I'm, I'm more likely to see a biostimulant response. So sometimes these so-called carbon fertilizers, um, I'm actually getting a, some kind of a biostimulation. And so, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that these products can't work. It's just, let's be, again, let's be more careful in our terminology and not call it carbon for, I'm just, I hate that phrase. It's just like, no, it's not carbon fertilizer. And yet you still, if you do a Google search right now, you're going to find a whole bunch of carbon fertilizers out there. Um, and I just think it's misrepresentation of the truth. Yeah. It seems like it's a, it, it's something that for whatever reason, it, it's a it's a type of language or a marketing phrase that resonates with people and and people think it's good somehow. Um, and and they're not, uh, yeah, it's just something that people like. and yet it's it's uh, it's just the wrong way to think about what's going on. And I I think, it's interesting in the turf grass industry, and maybe not so much in lawn care, um, 
probably so in sports turf, although I don't have a huge amount of experience with that, but definitely in golf and especially on sand capped root zones or, or uh, sand based root zones, people are terribly concerned about getting too much organic matter accumulation. And so there, a lot of work is done. Uh, a lot of articles are written. A lot of seminars are, are attended to figure out how to keep your organic matter low, how to add enough top dressing, how to make sure you're adding enough top dressing that has zero organic matter in it so that you can dilute the organic matter that's already in the soil. How, how much core aerification should you do or solid tine aerification and fill those holes with sand or dry jet to put sand in all for the purpose of removing or diluting the organic matter in the soil. Sorry, we, uh, I got a temporary disconnect, but I think we're, we're still here. Are you still yeah, there, Brian? I can hear you now. Yeah. I lost you for a minute. Okay, cool. Um, so it's, it's interesting that uh, we do all this work to try to remove organic matter or manage organic matter in the soil. And we can think of that, at, we could equivalently say that we're managing carbon in the soil, reducing carbon in the soil. And then at the same time, to be excited about adding carbon, why would we ever want to add carbon to the soil when so much focus of the management is how to remove carbon or keep carbon from getting too high in the soil. Have you thought about that uh, kind of contradiction? <laughs> and and uh, don't, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because organic matter and, and carbon are synonymous in, you know, in the many ways. And, you know, uh, it's organic matter is about 58% carbon. Um, and, and, and yeah, and, and in most situations, I want to build organic matter. Um, but no, notably, as you said, sports turf and golf, especially sand-based systems, we, you know, it's, it's harmful to us for various reasons. Um, so we're, yeah, so, so yeah, why are we all of a sudden excited about building up carbon and we're simultaneously trying to drive organic matter down? It doesn't make, it just does, it's part of the narrative of not making sense uh, of of, you know, what's being promoted. I, I, I've even thought about, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going to start selling hydrogen fertilization because hydrogen is also, you know, one of those non-mineral nutrients that's needed by plants. That plants are about 5% hydrogen. And so I think I could just bottle up some water and start selling it at high dollar values and call it hydrogen fertilization. Yeah, and, you, you know, could have a cool. third, like, yeah, yeah have another family business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, obviously, plants need hydrogen, but it's ubiquitous in the environment. If as long as that plant's got enough water and and it's got normal conditions, it's not hydrogen deficient. So it's the same argument for carbon. The the, the other non-mineral nutrient is oxygen, and that's a little bit you know, that plays a little different role because we actually do become, it, it, despite the fact that the shoots are bathed in 21% oxygen, um, it's very common to be oxygen depleted in the root zone for a variety of reasons, um, physiologically and, and soil chemistry wise. But uh, in fact, I most of the time when I, I do a lot of consulting and um, I almost always, you know, it's, it's number one, you know, I've got, I've got 
compaction and I've got oxygen depletion in the root zone. And so, you know, how do we deal with that? Well, we deal with it with aeration, you know, which drives down the organic matter. And, uh, but, but that's not necessarily harmful for these, uh, for these systems with uh, sand-based sports fields and golf greens. It's, I, I think we can manage the turf better and we can, we can address the real problems. I, I, I like to, to address things in a logical way and address the real problem. So if, if we have a compaction problem, I don't want to try to solve that by carbon fertilizer. If we don't have enough nitrogen, if we have a bad mowing quality or something, we should like identify what the real problems are. And the, to me, it's, it's quite unfortunate when people are concerned about carbon fertilization. When the grass itself is a uh, carbon capturing and organic matter production factory, that, and as you wrote in the article, you said that's their mission in life. And I made some calculations. I, I'd read um, Dr. Dr. Bob Caro wrote an article for the golf course management magazine. I'll put a direct link uh, to that in, in the show notes also. Um, I think back in the nineties and uh, I, I took some notes here. He said uh, 660 pounds per acre of new humus per year is produced by turf grass. Uh, and in total, if you look at what's typical, he said, uh, you'd have about 16,000 pounds per acre of humus, of which uh, about half of that, he said, would be humic acid. 16,000 pounds per acre in a, in a turf grass root zone. Um, I'm not so... I wanted to check for myself just on an exact carbon basis and, and uh, doing in metric, which I'm a little bit more familiar with now. So, so I calculated what a 0.1% change in soil organic matter would be in terms of carbon, which, uh, one gram per kilogram would be 0.1%. So if we, if we went from like 1% organic matter in the turf grass root zone to 1.1%, and that turns out to be 70 grams of carbon per square meter in the top four inches in the top 10 centimeters, that's 700 kilograms per hectare, more carbon, just that's carbon just by going from uh, 1% to 1.1% or, or from 2% to 2.1%. That's 14 pounds of carbon per thousand square feet in the top four inches. And that's yeah. 610 pounds per acre of carbon. And so I was like, wow. The, and I, I, so those numbers were way bigger than I expected. So then I double checked the math and then I double checked the math again. And then I'm like, wow, those are, that's a lot because it's, it's normal for turf grasses for the first 30 years of, of, of stand establishment to be accumulating the organic matter. You mentioned that where you tend to see a response might be in, in very early establishment before there's much organic matter in the soil. But as that organic matter, which is 58% carbon, uh, builds up in the soil, I don't know that carbon fertilizer is, is something that it should not be on people's minds. Just, just get it out of your mind and, and think about managing things that actually have an effect. That's, that's my, my uh, math contribution to this. 
Yeah, I'll just say that um, that math's important um, because a lot of times these products are being said, you know, go put on a quart per acre. I mean, you're you're adding just a tiny drop of carbon in a huge ocean of carbon. And so now, I, however, I will admit, though, that when I first started doing research on humic acid, I was I basically was using that same math. And I was thinking there is no way that it's going to make an impact. And then I, I was wrong. I, I started doing it and I said, okay. But the key was, is that we were combining that humic acid with phosphorus, you know, with the fertilizer before it was applied. So it was bonded. And then it, you know, so, so in some ways I was, I was, I was shocked uh, that the humic acid actually worked in that situation, but, I was also going to say, if, um, you know, in relation to something else you said, um, so I teach, I teach a turf grass science class and, and I teach an urban soil and water management class at BYU. And um, one of the things I like to do is I, I like to do a little research and kind of get my students thinking about how research is done. And so one of the things that we do every year is I will get a bunch of uh, soils and we will compact or, or a soil, a bunch of pots of a soil, and then I'll compact it uh, tremendously. And then we will go out and I'll, I'll have the students go out and find it. I'll say, go find products that claim that they're going to aerate the soil. And there's all kinds of them. And a lot of these do double duty as carbon fertilizers. Like they're claiming carbon fertilization and it's going to aerate and it's going to add microbial life, you know, just kind of these big promises. Um, it's going to cure everything except cancer. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll apply them at those rates and then I'll have the students go in and measure. It's like, okay, did it actually aerate the soil? Um, and no surprise, it doesn't, you know, they don't. I mean, you're trying to solve a physical problem with a chemical that just doesn't work typically. Um, uh, sometimes if I add a strong acid or if I just inject acid, I can dissolve some limestone um, that's in the pores. So that's, that's, that's maybe one time where a chemical might help with oxygen deprivation in the soil, in the root zone. But I just, I just want to say, you know, it's like, that's, let's make sure we're, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but let's make sure we're addressing the problem and not, trying to say, let's add carbon fertilization and it's going to solve my aeration problems. No, it's, you, you need to aerate your soil and, and, and that's it. You know, aerate and top dress is, is the best solution. We don't have anything that's better than that. Yeah. Th thank you. Uh, I think that that's a perfect, uh, way to wrap this up is, uh, to advise people, uh, if, because the people watching or listening to this are obviously turfgrass, uh, turfgrass professionals or uh, turfgrass aficionados, and uh, I think I would advise to find out what the real problems are and address them. <laughs> and yeah. I'm glad that you concur with that. Amen. So, yeah. Well, anything else that you would like to uh, share or add uh, before we say goodbye? No, I think I've said it all. Again, it's great to meet you. I uh, respect your work. I listen to your podcasts, uh, and it's good to, good to connect. All right. Well, thank you, 
Dr. Hopkins. It has been a great pleasure having you on the show. And uh, maybe we can talk again uh, about humic acid and carbon stuff. I, I know this this isn't going away. Us talking about this and you writing that article doesn't uh, take those products off the shelf and it doesn't stop that line of thinking um, that just tends to resonate with people that somehow carbon is good. Uh, so adding it as fertilizer must be good. Um, and, and I think both of us would try to be logical about it and, and continue uh, explaining it. So maybe, maybe in the future we can talk again. And I look forward to meeting you in person sometime. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank All you. All right. Everyone, thank you for listening. Thanks for watching. I will sign off now for ATC from Trong, Thailand. I'm Michael Woods. Bye-bye.